Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support. I remember asking him, do I have to tell my kids? And he said, nope, that's my job. You just walk beside me and you're here to take care of them. And by giving me a role right away in that moment where shock had sort of erased my brain, um, he really began to guide me through a process that I believe has been instrumental that we've made, the moving forward that we've made since Rob's death. Those are the words of Clarissa Mall as we revisit a popular program that first aired nearly a year ago. Clarissa is a writer, and she recounts in two episodes her experience of becoming a widow and a single mom of four young children. Everything you do from then on is different. One of the detectives, I think his name was He was a golden boy. All we can do right now is come together. Extreme domestic violence, multiple rapes. Life Support is a co-production of Five Stone Media and Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota. I'm Five Stone Media's Executive Director, Steve Johnson, and our host is Paul Johnson, the lead pastor of Ridgewood Church and a trauma survivor himself. So this really is a conversation among trauma survivors. Also a reminder that this was recorded via the conferencing platform, Zoom. And here to begin the conversation is Pastor Paul. It's great to have you back on Life Support, and uh, we're going to be talking about some really important things during our time together, and how grief fits into church, and how churches deal with grief, and some of the issues there. And my very special guest is Clarissa Mall, who is a writer, and uh, she caught my attention in one of the stories that she wrote for Christianity Today. She has her MA from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and has a a take on this topic that only comes from her own personal story and her own personal pain. So, Clarissa, it's so great to have you here. Thanks for coming on and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm really sorry that you have to be here talking about this because it's not something any of us asked for, but yet you're in the middle of a really difficult journey, and I really admire you for talking about it because it's a recent journey, a recent hardship. So would you mind taking a few minutes and just getting us caught up to how you got to this place and why you're talking about this topic. Sure. You know, this is a story that I never wanted to tell. Uh, Ten months ago, almost 11 months now, on a family vacation, my husband Rob uh, went on a hiking trip. He had been planning it for a long time with an old friend, and he fell to his death on Barrier Peak in Mount Rainier National Park. You know, Rob uh, left early that morning for his hiking trip. He'd done it so many times. He was a conscientious, skilled hiker. And uh, as he kissed me goodbye in our camper at our campsite, I thought nothing uh, different. There was no signal or sign that this would be a day that was different from any other kind of day. But we always had a communication plan. We always determined that he would call me when he got to the trailhead back from his hike. And uh, there was a time where I could be nervous, and that was when I could call for friends for help. And I knew that sometimes when you're hiking in the backcountry, you lose cell service. And so I didn't think anything about it when he was an hour late. But then when the hours began to creep by, I started to get nervous. And at 7 o'clock that night, uh, two chaplains arrived in a big white SUV and changed my life forever. I arrived at my campsite. I three 
three of my four children playing in the dusk outside the camper, and he gave me the news that nobody wants ever to hear, uh, that my husband had died and uh, that my story was changed forever. Wow. And how old were your kids at that point? Well, I have four children. My children are 14, 12, 10, and 7. Hmm. So not only did you have to start grappling with that right away, but you had to then try to begin to shepherd them through this as well, which is a whole nother dimension to this whole story, right? Yeah, you know, I, am, I feel like God's hand was in this process from the very beginning. Uh, I have felt his sovereign care over me and over our family from the moment those chaplains arrived. One of the chaplains from the police department, local police department, was a local pastor, and he knew just the words to say. Uh, he was experienced in trauma, and he was able to guide me through the process, even of talking to my children about what had just happened to their father. He, I remember asking him, do I have to tell my kids? And he said, nope, that's my job. You just walk beside me, and you're here to take care of them. And by giving me a role right away in that moment where shock had sort of erased my brain, um, he really began to guide me through a process that I believe has been instrumental that we've made, the moving forward that we've made since Rob's death. So I've been there and gotten that kind of news. Not exactly the same news, but life-altering news. And your world kind of stops, doesn't it? It just sort of, all of a sudden, you're in a different kind of surreal place that you never thought you would be, never wanted to be, but yet there you were. What kind of things were going through your mind as you started to process that? Well, you know, when the chaplains arrived, I knew the news wouldn't be good. And I said to them, I can't hear what you have to say until I have someone to hold my hand. And I called a local friend and I said, will you come down and hold my hands? These men are here. They want to talk to me. And before she arrived to hold my hands so I could hear the news, I asked for my journal. And over the course of the last six months, I had been writing verses in my journal under a title, I am the beloved. Verses that resonated with me, verses of God's care over me and blessing and love over me. And I asked the chaplains to tell me what they had to tell me in a single sentence. I told them I couldn't bear any more. And then I looked down into my lap and I began reading those verses. And really that's what I clung to when my brain became a fog. Uh, I clung to those words that were already embedded deep into my heart. Things that I didn't have to remember consciously that would just sort of bubble up in the moment. And those words in hymns and verses have been my sustaining grace uh, through these last almost 11 months. Because you're right, it is really hard to think in the midst of trauma. Maybe you could just take a moment and help others that maybe have seen people go through trauma or know that there are people within their sphere of influence who have gone through it and don't know what to say, don't know what to do, not sure how they should lean into that. What exactly do you experience? What did you experience in those next months afterwards? What was it like? Well, I feel like I almost became a child again. That's how I can best describe it. Uh, my attention span was extremely short. I had very few reasoning skills. And even basic tasks like 
driving the car and being able to concentrate in traffic, um, leaving the house and making sure that the oven was off. All of those very elemental tasks became a front of brain conscious kind of work. And I think that people who haven't experienced trauma in particular don't realize the effect that trauma actually has on the brain. Uh, a widow early on told me that it was a mercy that there were certain things I couldn't remember, that certain things were a fog. She said, I believe that the Lord allows our brains to slowly integrate that loss because if we couldn't, it would overwhelm us. And that kind of a fog is something that I don't think a lot of people understand. A lot of times when people experience grief, when they experience the loss of a loved one, there are lots of helpers who wanna jump in right away. And it's a blessing. I've been one of those helpers before. But the problem is that a lot of times a person who is grieving has no idea how they need to be helped. And it's primarily because of this brain fog that I believe happens as a mercy to the person who is learning to endure the kind of pain that will walk with them for the rest of their lives in grief. Yeah, that's such a good thing you just said because it's not like it. There's a day when it's over. It's a it's an adjustment process. It's a coping skill that you develop over a period of time. But the loss is still very real. And I think those who have been through this kind of thing um, understand that their lives will never be the same. The problem is, is they're surrounded by people many times, and maybe you've begun to experience this or have experienced this, that want you to kind of go back to the way you were. Like, hey, come on now. You know, you hear that a lot. Like, come on, you know, you know, don't play the victim. You know, there might be saying behind your back or something, but you're not going to be the same person. And, and I don't think that God wants you to be the same person. And I think that's a, that's a hard truth for a lot of people to hear. Yeah, you know, in 1969, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, established her model of the five stages of grief. And those five stages of grief were actually modeled after what she observed as the experience of a personal diagnosed with terminal illness, uh, going through the grieving process and uh, accepting their destiny, really. Uh, and unfortunately, those stages of grief have been misapplied to people who are grieving, to the people who are left behind. Uh, one of the things you learn very quickly in grief is that it is not linear. This is not a process of moving from point A to point B. Really, I like to think of grief as a companion instead. Grief is a companion, we get to know our grief. Uh, sometimes grief shows up unannounced at our doorstep. Other times grief sits in the back of the room and we're surprised by the joy that we find in life. Uh, but all of those emotions, anger, uh, denial, acceptance, joy, hope, despair, all of those things a grieving person will experience for the rest of their lives in some capacity or another. And realizing that grief has moved in, that grief has come to stay, allows us actually to care for one another better. Um, grieving is a lot like being a new mom. I know this, I have four kids and, and you go from that moment before baby's born <laughs> to after baby's born and your life is never the same again. It's never the same in hard ways and it's never the same in good ways as well. And no one asks you to be like you were before your kids were born. 
there's something concrete and elemental that we can see that reminds us that baby is a cue to us that someone's life is different. Unfortunately, with grief, there's no visual, visual cue. Uh, there's nothing but absence, an empty chair at the table instead of a booster seat at the table. And so a lot of people don't realize that grief is a companion that will move into your life and will stay with you. And that's not depressing uh, or fatalistic. That's a reality of what it means to live with this emotion, this uh, experience of loss. Clarissa, that makes so much sense, and I can totally relate to you. And it's so good for people to hear that because one of the elemental pieces of helping others is to try to pick up on that long-lasting effect. And I'm seeing in this pandemic now, at least in my own personal life, the trauma that none of us really probably even understand that we're going through is triggering all kinds of things in me that are surprising. And I see people around me that are having a bit of this brain fog that you've described. And I'm concerned about the mental health of people around me because there's things happening that I don't think we really have gotten to yet because we've never been through this before. What do you think? Do you think that's, a, that's something that's happening around you as well? Yeah, you know, we all brought our baggage into quarantine with us, didn't we? Mm. Uh, we brought our financial concerns into quarantine. They, some began in quarantine, but we brought them along. We brought our grief, we brought our relational struggles, all of these things we brought along with us. And the difficulty in pandemic I'm seeing is just that wrestling with how do we bear these burdens and this new burden of isolation, of fear, anxiety, uncertainty. It's hard to balance those two things. And for anyone who knows the experience of grief, um, they know that you can really only do one thing at a time. And so for us in pandemic, in our family at least, uh, we've committed to slowing down and doing one thing at a time. So if a particular piece of life becomes overwhelming, then we stop. We slow down and we do one step at a time. And I really believe that uh, that perspective on life will keep hold us in good stead after our phases have completed and we're back to our new normal, I should say. Uh, I believe the process of doing life one step at a time will be a good learning experience for us and something that we'll take on and, and use for the rest of our lives. Yeah, that's really wise. Clarissa Mall is my guest, and she wrote a terrific article for Christianity Today called Letting Grief Come to Church. And Clarissa, this caught my eye immediately, and as I began to read, I, I just kept saying, oh, yes, yes, yes. And the subheading is five ways to welcome what may feel unwelcome once doors reopen. And you have picked this apart really well here and categorized it well. What was the thinking process that drove you to write this article in the first place? Well, you know, my dear husband, Rob, 
published a book, came out 10 years ago today, or th this month, sorry, and uh, it's called The Art of Dying. And Rob was a journalist. He worked in a funeral home. He was a hospice volunteer, and he saw that there was a deep need in the church to learn to care for people who are dying. And so in his book, he sought to discover and rediscover ways that the church could come alongside people who were dying and care for them in that time of need. And reflecting on his work, especially at this decade mark, I began to think to myself, how do we take care of the people who are left behind? What does that look like? Because uh, author Miriam Neff has said that 50% of widows don't return to the church they attended with their husband after he's died. Um, the estimates are that 70% of widows lose their entire social network after the death of their husband. And I know for myself, relationships have deeply changed since Rob's death, deeply changed, even in places that were so intimate and loving as family and as the church. And as I thought about pandemic and the grief that we will all be bringing back to church, I thought, what ways can we care for one another? Uh, in the same ways that Rob thought, what ways can we care for the dying? I'm interested in what ways we can care for the grieving because more than ever before, there will be people sitting in our pews who desperately need our care. That's something that as a leader myself, it's a little frightening because I don't know what it's going to be like and what kind of needs our flock will have and what our staff resources are going to look like to try to meet those needs. And you have mentioned in this article from your standpoint as one who's going to come back to church that you're anxious about that. So I think everybody's anxious because we've never done this before, right? It's a new thing. Well, if the church is a family, then I think for pastors and church leaders, uh, I hope that that is a weight of anxiety that could be lifted off their shoulders. Grief ministry is whole church ministry. Uh, it is not the job of only ministry leaders because ministry leaders can't sit beside the widow in a church service. Uh, that has to be people coming around her who say, hey, I don't want you to sit alone. Um, it needs to be Sunday school volunteers who are able to come alongside the mom who's miscarried and her infant won't be on the roster in the fall, uh, who are able to attend to those particular needs so if the church is a family, then grief is family work. And we can do this together because anyone can make a meal. Anyone can send a card. Anyone can remember someone else with tenderness. Uh, it's really about mobilizing those skills that are already in our communities and allowing people to use their gifts to care for others. I do want to get to this article, but I do want to ask you as well, what have been some of the things in the past 11 months that people have said to you that have been helpful or done for you that have been really helpful and life-giving? And what are some of the things that have been difficult to deal with or made you angry or frustrated? Well, you know, in trauma, we use the skills we have, right? <laughs> the essence of trauma is that we are surprised, that we are unprepared. And so, yes, there have been hurtful things that people have said and done. I definitely don't think that they intended them. 
uh, because in that moment, we say the words that we think will work or we don't know what to say and we say nothing at all. Uh, I think though that the most valuable thing that someone has said to me has been, how are you doing today? A lot of times uh, people who are grieving, well, just people in general are asked as a greeting, how you doing? And our sort of pat response is fine, good, I'm doing well. But does that really reveal the inner workings of our hearts? Not really. But when someone asks me, how are you doing today? It acknowledges for me that grief has a wide range of emotions. That today I might be doing great. But if you ask me the same question tomorrow, I might give you an entirely different answer. And that willingness to attend to the moment with tenderness, that kind of love has been the kind of love that has been most valuable and uh, most comforting to me in my time of loss. Yeah, because you know what it's like when someone walks by and you don't even know them very well and they just shoot you a quick like, hey, how's it going? At least for me, and I'm not claiming to be deeply spiritual, but the things that are going on in my mind are like, well, number one, who are you to ask me? I don't have the energy to even try to figure out how to answer that question. And I just pull away. And I used to tell people that, you know, you know, guys aren't good at talking necessarily anyway. People would walk by me in church or something and just touch my elbow and keep walking or something like that. You know, that kind of message that, hey, don't worry, I'm here if you need me. That didn't force me to work hard to get into their, you know, sphere of reference. Because I, I can exactly understand what you're saying. And sometimes we we put the pressure on the grieving person to teach others how to grieve and to try to express themselves in ways that are just exhausting. And, you know, that's such a helpful thing to point out to people, what you just said. Yeah, Rob says in his book, he has a chapter on a morning, and he said uh, that it's a really hard position for a grieving person to be in as an educator for others. And so really, in uh, the piece in Christianity Today, that's why I wanted to include the practical advice of considering death as a church family. Because if we're prepared for death, if we stop running away from it, if we talk about it in Sunday school classes, if we lament it in worship, if we become comfortable with this uncomfortable guest, then we do know what to say in the moment. We do know how to care for others. And we're not left having the grieving person be the educator. Instead, we allow the grieving person simply to grieve and we come around that person with care and love. Which is the way God intended it. All right, now, finally, to the article. And we're going to have you back next time, too, so we can really delve into this. But really interested in your, in your, your number one thing here. And the, the premise of the article is how to care for people when we come back to church or those that are grieving in church. And your, your first point is integrate lament into worship. What did you mean by that? Well, since pandemic began, we've seen pastors and churches across the country lament the isolation of not being able to meet together in person. Uh, I know that our church has done a magnificent job attempting to get online quickly, pivot from being in person to online, but we all know that the care doesn't feel the same and we long to be together again. But we've gotten a little bit of practice here with lament. 
And in the same way that we don't want to just jump out of pandemic and forget all the lessons we've learned, I hope that the lesson of lament here, the corporate lament that we've been doing for, ooh, is it 11 weeks now already? Um, I hope that we will remember that lesson, that we have things to sorrow about throughout the year, that each person in our, our congregation has something that weighs on them. And when that sorrow is acknowledged in worship, that is where healing can begin. Yeah, well said. We're going to talk about this more next time. Clarissa, thanks so much for being with us. It's so good to meet you. Thank you so much. Clarissa Mall is our guest, and she is a writer who has written a fantastic article for Christianity Today. You can find it online, and I would really highly recommend that you do so. And uh, the article itself is available called Letting Grief Come to Church. Just Google that. All of her contact information is there. And I want to encourage you, too, that there is a purpose in suffering. God never does it because he wants to hurt us. And if you're hurting right now, know that God loves you. He wants to help, and others want to help, too. They want to help you. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, and if if a member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And so your hope in suffering is available to you through the love of Jesus Christ, but also through the love of others who are around you. So please reach out and give them an opportunity to minister to you, and you may find that you'll be enriched by that. I want to thank our wonderful partners here on Life Support. Thank you for spending time with us. You can find out more about our program on MyFaithRadio.com, Faith Radio Network, a great partner, Five Stone Media at fivestonemedia.com. You can see a video version of our podcast and then here at Ridgewood Church as well at mywc.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at Pastor Paul J. Love to see you there. So thanks again for being here and we'll catch you next time on Life Support. Life Support is a co-production of Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota and Five Stone Media. For a video version of this conversation, log on to fivestonemedia.com slash life support. Thanks for listening to this Life Support podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make a gift now at myfaithradio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Life Support, Subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and grow the impact of life support.